called the Big Personality Test. But I thought before I share with you some of the preliminary results from that project, I'd first begin with uh, sort of a, an overview, a brief sort of introduction of um, personality psychology. Now, oftentimes, I think when, when people uh, think about um, personality psychology, they tend to um, think about characters or people such as uh, Sigmund Freud or perhaps Carl Jung. Um, these are very uh, important uh, figures in the history of psychology. They, they made huge contributions. Um, however, contemporary theory and research in personality psychology now uh, really doesn't um, focus much at all on any of the ideas put forth by uh, Freud or Jung. Um, perhaps some of the ideas that uh, have influenced personality psychology now is the idea that early life experiences uh, can shape how we see ourselves and our personalities. But beyond that, um, people have gone uh, away from ideas of the unconscious and psychoanalysis instead to, to study uh, personality traits. Now, what's sort of interesting, perhaps, is that um, the way in which psychologists now think about personality actually predates uh, the work of Freud and Jung. In fact, um, some of the early sort of, uh, we might say, one of the first personality psychologists was uh, Theophrastus, who was one of uh, Aristotle's pupils. He, um, you know, uh, went on to become very uh, well-known and respected for his work in biology and, and uh, physics and metaphysics. But uh, apparently he also had an interest in, in psychology uh, and particularly in personality. Um, he had developed uh, what uh, now is referred to as the Theophrastan sketches in which he uh, put together, I think, approximately 30 character sketches in which he described the, the types of individuals one would encounter um, you know, in their everyday lives. And uh, some of these characters are people like the grumbler or the distrustful man, the unseasonable man, or the coward, the late learner, the patron of rascals, or the surly man. Now, it's not entirely clear what the objective of these character sketches were. I mean, some have suggested that they may have been purely for entertainment, um, and you could sort of guess by the title of some of these character sketches that it may have been. But um, I think that uh, the, the character sketches actually have uh, a fair amount of value, and I wanted to uh, share with you uh, a little bit of one of these character sketches. This is for the surly man. Now, he begins these character sketches by providing a definition of, of what uh, uh, the, the, the main uh, quality is, and then he goes on to describe some of the, the common features of these, type, of these characters. So, surliness is discourtesy in words. The surly man is one who, when asked where so-and-so is, will say, don't bother me, or when spoken to, will not reply. If he has anything for sale, instead of informing the buyers at what price he is prepared to sell it, he will ask them what he is to get for it. Those who send him presents with their compliments at feast tide are told that he will not touch their offerings. He cannot forgive a person who has besmirched him by accident or pushed him. Now, it goes on, and... What I want to sort of point out about these character sketches, and the reason why I think they're important, is, is not only because these characters still live among us today, which I think is quite interesting, that we could still identify people who are surly or, or cowardly or, or grumblers, but the, the important aspect of this is that these character sketches reflect a fundamental way in which people talk about and describe their personalities. 
When people talk about their personality or describe personalities of others they know, they do so using what personality psychologists call trait descriptors. We use adjectives and various words to describe uh, ways in which people behave across situations and across uh, over time. So when we describe someone as being surly or disagreeable, what we're saying is that this is someone who uh, is unfriendly uh, across situations to different types of people, uh, and is, uh, it's also someone who is disagreeable um, over time, um, uh, dis uh, disagreeable today as well as maybe next week. Now, <clears throat> this idea of, of these personality traits uh, has, is really the foundation of personality psychology today, uh, but things didn't really pick up to where they are uh, without some important work but done by, uh, among, among others, uh, Francis Galton. Uh, Galton was, I think, the first to uh, explicitly articulate what we now refer to as the lexical hypothesis. And the idea here is if we really want to understand personality and which personality characteristics are important, what we need to do is look at language, look at the words people use to describe themselves. And so the lexical hypothesis is that the most salient and socially relevant personality characteristics in people's lives become encoded into language and expressed as single words. Now, I think, you know, uh, the basic idea here is that, you know, in, in some cultures, for example, uh, they may have a variety of different types of words to describe snow, or perhaps like in this country, you have a variety of different words to describe rain because it, it rains frequently and there are various types of rains, and so it's useful to, to describe or differentiate different types of rain or precipitation. And here is the basic uh, idea with the lexical hypothesis with regard to personality. And so Galton, uh, I think, was uh, one of the first to begin perusing the dictionary to try to identify words or personality traits that we could use to, to begin mapping personality. And it was some time later that an American psychologist named Gordon Allport uh, entered the, the picture and uh, attempted to, um, to do this, uh, uh, this work a bit more uh, rigorously than Galton had. Um, Allport had enlisted the, the help of a very unfortunate graduate student named Oddbert. Uh, Oddbert's task was to uh, examine, to really read the 1925 Webster's uh, International Language Dictionary and, uh, and to identify words that could be used to describe personality. So of the 400,000 words in the dictionary, Oddbert ended up identifying uh, approximately 18,000 words, uh, just about, just under 5% of the English language, uh, according to their work, uh, could be used to describe personality. Now these are some of the, the trait descriptors that uh, Allport and Oddbert reported in their work, um, words and, and qualities such as careless, uh, intelligent, generous, friendly, creative. Now, fortunately for Oddbert, all of his time and effort wasn't spent in, in vain because actually uh, this was a watershed moment in personality science because what it allowed psychologists to do was to begin developing personality inventories. Now psychologists could begin quantifying personality by generating these uh, personality inventories, these lists of words, and administering these uh, inventories to uh, participants and asking them to rate themselves on these different uh, descriptors. Um, people would also be asked to rate uh, friends or family members who would then rate these participants. And so it was very exciting because uh, a lot of progress was being made and, and, and they could apply various statistical techniques to study personality. 
But as you can imagine, with 18,000 words to work with, it's quite difficult to know which ones are the most important ones to use. Uh, which ones should we use in our personality inventories? And so this was a problem that uh, was um, kind of delayed, I think, progress to a certain extent in personality psychology for, for quite some time until uh, a British psychologist by the name of Raymond Cattell um, entered the scene. He, um, he had introduced a statistical technique called factor analysis, which is a form of matrix algebra, to the study of personality traits. At that time, Cattell was quite interested in intelligence, and a lot of researchers were trying to map the structure of intelligence and, and, and searching for what we now refer to as G, or general intelligence. And in the intelligence area, people were applying factor analysis uh, to these various intelligence tests. And so Cattell recognized that actually there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be done here where we can apply factor analysis to the study of personality. Because what factor analysis allows us to do is reduce a large number of variables down to some basic factors that are defined by variables that share a lot of similarities. And so Cattell was uh, beginning to use these words that Allport and Oddbert had uh, identified in their work, administering surveys to participants, and then factor analyzing people's descriptions of themselves given these personality descriptors. And at that time, factor analysis was done by hand, and it would take literally weeks for, for them to get a single result, whereas now we can run our analyses in fractions of a second. After weeks, or really months, of, of uh, this uh, research, Cattell identified 16 dimensions or factors of personality. So this was, this was uh, very significant. Suddenly, no longer we didn't have these 18,000 words, but we only had 16 different factors of personality. So things were looking really bright. Um, until Hans Eysenck, working at the Institute of Psychiatry, began uh, factor analyzing some personality descriptors, and he found three personality factors. And not long after that, you had others identifying four factors, five, and six factors. And so, although we had reduced the, the pool of, of words down from 18,000 to about 16 or three, uh, there was still uh, a bit there was a bit of ambiguity, and uh, what was really needed was some conceptual clarity in terms of uh, sort of what are the best, uh, what's the best way in order to, to map and to, to structure personality. And it really wasn't until about 20 years ago that a number of personality psychologists had got together and compared results from um, you know, literally hundreds of studies involving tens of thousands of participants. And uh, at that time, you know, we had desktop computers. They were able to run these factor analysis much more quickly. And it was uh, about 20 years ago or so that there was a lot of consensus around what we now call uh, the big five uh, personality traits. Now, what these researchers were able to do is to run these factor analyses on these various personality uh, inventories, and the results across these different analyses, given various parameters, uh, converge to suggest that we can describe human personality in terms of these five basic dimensions. Now, these are the five dimensions. Sometimes people will refer to this as sort of the ocean of personality traits. Um, this, this first uh, factor, uh, labeled O, uh, here's a, a sample of some of the personality trait descriptors that fall on this factor. And the way to think about this is that suppose I administer a personality inventory to you that has these 55 uh, words on them, and I'm asking you to indicate the extent to which you possess these different characteristics. 
people who describe themselves or strongly agree that they are inventive will also perceive themselves as being quite sophisticated and also quite original, um, but they won't perceive themselves as being traditional or very simple. And similarly, people who perceive themselves as being very efficient and cautious and tidy don't perceive themselves as being lazy or undependable or disorderly. So these are traits that are, are highly related with one another, and these are dimensions of personality. So unlike, say, the, the Theophrastan character sketches, these dimensions um, allow us to describe human personality in terms of these five dimensions. Just as we can describe objects in terms of three dimensions, we can, we can describe personality using these five dimensions. Now, what do these dimensions or factors um, stand for? Well, the first one, O, uh, stands for openness. Now, there's um, a bit of disagreement, although there's, there's a lot of agreement about the, these five factors. There's a bit of grumbling occasionally about the best labels to give these factors. Some people prefer openness, others prefer openness to experience because um, this, this dimension reflects to a certain extent a, a curiosity and a, an imagination component. Some people prefer to call it intellect because there's some evidence to suggest that uh, people high in openness tend to do very well on uh, academic and uh, measures and measures of intelligence. But at the end of the day, really what's most important is that um, regardless of the label we use, people who are high in openness tend to be imaginative, curious, creative types of people. They enjoy playing with ideas. They tend to be very artistic. Um, and so I, I've presented some sort of uh, prototypical people who I've identified as being highly open. I don't know any of the people I'm going to show you, so if you happen to know them personally and I'm wrong, please do let me know. Um, but I think it's safe to say that these people are probably above average in terms of openness. But in contrast, we, we also need to think about what, what's it, what might it be like, or what are people who are low in openness like? Well, uh, people who are low in openness tend to see the world in terms of black and white. Um, they tend to be very concrete thinkers. We might describe them as being somewhat practical in their thinking. Um, they have a very low tolerance for ambiguity and, and really don't enjoy playing with abstract or complex ideas. So for the next few slides, people, I'll, I'll be presenting people who I, I perceive as being high on these traits on the left side and people low on the, uh, on the left, uh, I'm sorry, your right side of the slide. The second factor, uh, C, stands for conscientiousness. Now, people who are high in conscientiousness tend to be people who are very uh, tidy, hardworking, uh, organized. Uh, there's a lot of self-discipline that goes along with, with conscientiousness. Um, you know, people who are the air traffic controllers, these are people who are very high in conscientiousness. They have to manage a lot of information and uh, they can't, they have to be able to stay focused under pressure. Um, if you're interviewing students or if you're interviewing potential employees, what we look for is conscientiousness. We want someone who's going to show up to work, show up on time, and, and do what is expected of them. And people who are high in conscientiousness do this. In contrast, people who are low in conscientiousness tend to be a bit more, uh, shall we say, disorganized, somewhat uh, rebellious. They, um, they tend to resist uh, convention and the status quo. Um, and so um, 
I think there's also evidence to suggest that when, when people are young, conscientiousness is a really good predictor of how well young people do at school. Um, and I think this is largely because doing well in school when you're young is largely a result of how well you can do what the teacher tells you to do. Uh, interestingly, however, when we look at university students, conscientiousness isn't a very good indicator of how well a student will do. Instead, openness is a very good predictor of how well students do at university. I think largely because by that point, uh, it's less about following rules and instructions, and it's more about comprehending uh, new information and uh, developing and playing with uh, abstract ideas. Now, the, the third dimension, E, stands for extroversion. Uh, people who are very high in extroversion tend to be very sociable, uh, talkative. Uh, they, they tend to be the life of the party. They also tend to be quite assertive and energetic. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people who are high in extroversion would much prefer to spend their time with other people uh, as opposed to spending time alone. Whereas people who are low in extroversion, who we may call uh, somewhat introverted, uh, tend to prefer time alone. They, they would much to prefer to spend their, their free time by themselves than with other people. Uh, people low in extroversion tend to uh, be quiet, uh, but reflective and introspective. Uh, the fourth dimension, A, stands for agreeableness. Another label we could give agreeableness would maybe be uh, the love factor. Really, what agreeableness is all about is being warm and kind and, and helping and considerate of other people. Um, <clears throat> Uh, people who are high in agreeableness are able to maintain close relationships for long periods of time, whereas people who are very low in uh, agreeableness tend to struggle to maintain relationships, largely because they're quite irritable and unpleasant to be around. Um, and the fifth dimension, N, stands for neuroticism. Now, this perhaps is the, the most uh, unfortunate label for all of the dimensions because oftentimes when people see neuroticism, they, they, uh, they tend to think of it in, in very negative sorts of ways. Uh, that's unfortunate because really what neuroticism is capturing is um, maybe um, how attuned people are into their emotions. People who are high in neuroticism tend to be uh, very emotional, um, uh, emotionally unstable at times. Um, there's also uh, a negative affect components, so people who are high on this dimension tend to experience depression and uh, tend to experience anxiety. And in contrast, people who are low in neuroticism tend to be maybe uh, not very in touch with their emotions, they're uh, unflappable, um, and they tend to be calm and, and collected uh, in, in stressful situations. So these are the, the, the big five personality dimensions. And uh, for the past uh, 20 years or so, there's been a lot of interest in looking at uh, uh, the, the effects of these personality characteristics in people's everyday lives. And so there's been a lot of uh, studies looking at whether or not our personalities uh, affect our, our health or our psychological well-being or what roles do our, does our personality play in our romantic relationships. Are certain types of people happier and healthier uh, the, uh, as a function of the, as a result of the personalities they have? Well, that's, I think, where uh, the, the big personality test uh, is uh, going to be very valuable in addressing a lot of these questions. Um, now, it was about a year ago uh, that uh, the BBC had launched uh, what they've called the big personality test, and this is a, a large internet uh, survey that I've 
been fortunate enough to be involved with um, that um, is in part uh, for the, the Child of Our Time television series that the BBC has been producing for the past 10 years. Now, the big personality test uh, is designed to capture, really obtain a lot of data from a, a large representative sample of people in this country and begin looking at the relationships between personality and a variety of different outcomes. Now, um, we've looked at a variety of different things. Uh, of course, we've looked at personality, and we're using uh, a widely used measure in personality psychology called the Big Five Inventory. Um, there are 44 items on this survey. This is just a sample of some of the items. Um, and one of the things that I want to sort of make clear here is that this idea of personality trait descriptors is really at the core of this measure because you can see that it's, uh, uh, there are, all, each of these items are really uh, based on a single sort of core personality descriptor. So the first one, talkative, is tapping into extroversion. The second one is tapping into being low in agreeableness. The third one is capturing conscientiousness. The fourth one, capturing neuroticism. And the fifth one is openness. And the items work in this order. So extroversion, again, agreeableness, um, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness. So we've measured uh, personality. In addition to that, we've also captured a lot of other information, a lot of demographic information from the participants. Um, <clears throat> we also have uh, gotten a lot of uh, information about uh, geography and where people were living at the time in which they completed the survey, as well as where they uh, spent their youth. So we uh, asked participants to provide uh, the first four characters of their postcodes. Um, we also uh, asked a number of questions about family history, a uh, number of siblings, birth order, um, as well as uh, information about one's parents, uh, occupations, and education of parents. Um, we were also interested in childhood experiences and whether or not early childhood experiences and particularly traumatic experiences might be related to personality later in life. Uh, we included measures of satisfaction with life or well-being, uh, satisfaction with work, as well as a measure of physical health. Now, um, we have a lot of new results um, from this uh, survey. What, uh, what I'm showing you are just kind of preliminary results. We're still uh, collecting data. From what I understand, the survey will be up until uh, sometime in early 2011. Um, so we, w what we have now is just preliminary. Um, and what I'd like to do is show you some of these results. Uh, some of them are consistent with previous research in personality psychology, uh, but we have a number of new results that I hope will um, um, really be the foundation for some new directions in personality psychology. Um, one of the things that uh, a lot of people are interested in and ask about is whether there are gender differences in personality. And uh, these results are consistent with what the literature um, shows. What we find is that, um, in general, men tend to score higher in, in terms of openness, whereas women tend to score higher in measures of uh, agreeableness and uh, emotional instability. Um, now, these, these three um, differences, really, the openness, agreeableness, and neuroticism are really well documented 
Um, there's various uh, hypotheses as to why there are these gender differences. Um, some of them point to socialization. Um, girls and boys are raised very differently. Uh, girls are raised to put a lot of value on relationships and uh, uh, this nurturing roles. And that may be one of the explanations as to why women tend to score higher on measures of agreeableness, in part because of how they were raised. There's also research looking uh, at um, differences in terms of um, um, hormones, and um, there's some evidence to suggest that certain uh, uh, sex hormones contribute to this nurturing quality, such as um, oxytocin. Now, uh, a similar explanation is offered for the gender differences in uh, neuroticism. Here again, uh, girls are raised to be much more uh, expressive and in tune with their emotions and their feelings, and they're encouraged to talk about them, whereas boys, on the other hand, aren't really encouraged to talk about their feelings. And so again, these are uh, hypotheses as to uh, how these gender differences come, come about. And there's been studies looking at how parents interact with their young children, and some of the, the, those studies are consistent with this hypothesis that parents treat and interact with their children very differently depending on the children's sex. Now, we also uh, looked at whether there are demographic differences in personality. Um, there are no demographic or uh, rather, I'm sorry, uh, racial or ethnic uh, differences in personality. However, there are some relationships with social class. Um, people who are from more upper and middle class backgrounds tend to score higher on measures of openness. Um, a lot of the evidence here would seem to suggest that this is in part a result of um, uh, education. Openness is one of the, uh, the personality dimensions that is most affected by education. Um, and I think this makes a lot of sense because going to university um, really encourages people to um, play with new ideas, to engage in complex and abstract thinking. And so naturally that sort of environment may pull out these types of personality characteristics. And a lot of the evidence um, is consistent with this idea. There's also, uh, we also found that people growing up in large families tended to be higher in agreeableness and lower in neuroticism. Um, this is a, a new finding. It's not entirely clear what exactly it means, but we're, we can speculate that people who are, uh, who've grown up in larger families and have more siblings uh, tend to have more people to, to lean on. They have a larger uh, immediate social support network, and so uh, there's uh, perhaps uh, more opportunities to engage in these nurturing roles, whereas people with fewer siblings or only children don't have these sorts of opportunities. Now, one of the other sort of questions that I've been quite interested in uh, concerns age and whether or not personality a uh, changes as we get older. Now, the data that I'll be presenting in the next few slides are sort of cross-sectional. Clearly, uh, we've, uh, we've asked people to complete a survey. We asked them how old they were. We haven't been tracking these people for, you know, throughout their entire lives. So that's one of the limitations uh, with these data. But nevertheless, um, I think that uh, they, they highlight some potentially interesting um, uh, patterns uh, in personality development. Now, we may ask the question of, you know, do people become more conscientious or disciplined or focused as they get older, or do they become less so? And the evidence that we have suggests that actually uh, people become more conscientious as they get older. But what's, I think, most interesting to me is that we see that this increase in conscientiousness tends to be steepest uh, early in life, and, and the slope, this increase in conscientiousness, tends to, to slow somewhat by the uh, early to mid-30s. 
And I think what is particularly interesting about this is that, you know, this period in development is when young people gradually have to assume more roles, more responsibilities. We begin going to university and we no longer have our parents to wake us up and to get us going in the morning. We have to take it upon ourselves to go to, go to lectures and to, to do what is expected of us. Well, eventually we graduate and we get a job and we have responsibilities. We're expected to be at certain places at certain time and to perform. And gradually we, we, we form relationships and we have children and we have uh, increasing amounts of responsibility. And I think that uh, this is a reflection of how the environment and, and particularly how these social roles that are common at these different periods of one life, one's life really uh, pushes people to, to acquire some of these conscientious types of characteristics. So people are really kind of adapting to these, these roles. Now, we were also interested in looking at agreeableness. You know, there's uh, a lot of people who would seem to suggest that uh, we get... Uh, less happy and less agreeable as we get older. You know, we, we hear about grumpy old men, for example, the big Hollywood movie. So we were wondering, you know, to what extent is there any truth to this idea? Um, some of you may be happy to, to learn that actually our data suggests that people get a bit happier or more agreeable as they get older. Now, there's another interesting pattern here that I want to point out. And you see that, you know, um, really in young adulthood and in older adulthood, we see that uh, there's no real growth in agreeableness. They're fairly flat lines for men and women. But there's a period from around uh, early 30s on through the 50s or so where we see that agreeableness goes up. So what's going on here? Why are people becoming more agreeable as they get older? Well, one hypothesis, really, is that this is the time whenever people have children. They're starting families, and by being a parent, we assume this nurturing role where we have to care for another person who's depending on us. And so here again, maybe people are adapting to this role that they're in, and this is bringing out certain qualities in them that they didn't have before because of they, they weren't in this particular uh, role. They didn't have this relationship. So because we asked a number of questions of our participants, uh, which included uh, whether or not they had children, we were actually able to test this hypothesis. Because if this hypothesis is correct, then we should expect to see that people with children become more agreeable as they get older, whereas people without children don't. And so the next slide is showing results only for our uh, female participants, but the pattern is exactly the same for the male participants. We'll have two lines, parents and non-parents. And what we see is that, as we expected, people with children gradually become more agreeable over time, whereas people without children stay the same. And it's important to note that, that people start out at the same place. And so it's not just that agreeable people are having children, because in that case we would expect this difference to be much larger, but it isn't. Statistically, there's no difference between these two groups at this point. And so I think that's a really kind of interesting finding. And, and altruism is one of the facets of agreeableness that we looked at, the one that's most relevant to this question. Now, <clears throat> we're also interested in early childhood experiences and whether or not experience a trauma might uh, uh, shape a person's personality later in life. Now, we assessed uh, childhood trauma with four questions. Uh, we asked our participants whether or not they uh, uh, experienced the death, a death of a loved one uh, when they were young, before the age of 18. 
We also asked whether their parents divorced before they uh, turned 18, uh, whether they were a victim of sexual abuse or physical abuse. And so we combined uh, responses to all four questions, and we've essentially compared people who reported having at least one of those four types of traumas compared to those who did not. And what we find is that those participants who reported experiencing one of these traumas in childhood tended to be higher in openness. Now, why is that? I mean, one of the explanations is that by experiencing one of these traumas, it really shakes people's worldview. I mean, if you've been a victim of sexual or physical abuse, this radically transforms how you engage with and then perceive the world. And because openness is, uh, in part, a reflection of how people sort of perceive the world and uh, experience it, we think that uh, this may be one of the explanations for this, um, this difference. Um, People who experience the trauma tend to be lower in agreeableness. I think the explanation here is that agreeableness is reflecting a sense of how trusting and warm people are towards others. It's an interpersonal sort of personality quality. And so people who've experienced these sorts of losses are naturally going to be much more cautious and more skeptical of other people and therefore less agreeable. They tend to be higher in neuroticism, so they experience more anxiety and more depression and they report being lower in life satisfaction. Now, it was this finding that was intriguing to me, and I was wondering whether or not there's a point at which people who've experienced a childhood trauma sort of uh, recover from this experience, um, or do they sort of suffer from this childhood uh, trauma for their entire life? So, similar to the other slides that I've shown you, what we could do is look at uh, satisfaction with life or psychological well-being uh, throughout the lifespan to see, for one, do people become more or less satisfied with their lives as they get older, but secondly, are there differences uh, throughout the lifespan among those who experience a childhood trauma and those who do not. And what we found is that there was a significant difference throughout the lifespan, or at least the early part of life, but near the early 50s or so, we see that there's this increase uh, for, for everyone, but we also begin to see that this increase is much steeper for those people who experienced a trauma, um, which would suggest uh, that people do recover from these experiences. I mean, it's noteworthy how large this difference is, that experiencing one of these traumas can really have profound, long-lasting effects on how people um, experience the world and how satisfied they are with their lives. But there appears to be a point later in life where people are able to recover from these childhood difficulties. Now, uh, we also looked at, among other things, job satisfaction. Are, are people with certain personality characteristics more or less satisfied with their jobs? Uh, what we tend to find is that the two personality characteristics that are most strongly related to job satisfaction, regardless of the type of job one has, is extroversion and conscientiousness. I think the explanation for extroversion is that, you know, uh, most jobs are, involve interacting with other people. Extroverts really enjoy interacting with other people, so naturally they may enjoy their jobs to the extent that it allows them to, to be with others. Conscientiousness, similarly, is about um, order, it's about uh, achievement, and jobs provide us with things to do, with goals, with objectives. And so here again, it's an opportunity for people to, to do something with their, their time. 
But of course, not all jobs are the same. Some jobs uh, emphasize certain qualities more than others. And so we were able to divide among our participants, uh, divide them into different types of occupational uh, groupings. One of the groups that we looked at were sort of investigative jobs. These are jobs in, in science and in research um, that involve a lot of um, um, time spent uh, discovering and developing new ideas. Um, people who really who are involved in, in these types of jobs, who are high in conscientiousness and high in openness, enjoy those jobs most. I think the, the idea here is that people who are high in conscientiousness are going to have the, the, the ability to focus and to, to be precise in the way that they need to in order to do good research. And of course, they're going to be very high in openness and be creative and imaginative and enjoy playing with, with new ideas. People who are involved in enterprising jobs, these are jobs mainly in business, finance, sales, uh, people who are very high in extroversion and low in neuroticism really enjoy these jobs. Again, I think with these types of jobs, there's a lot of social interaction. And so uh, that's one of the reasons, I think, why extroverts enjoy enterprising work. Um, artistic jobs, perhaps not surprisingly, um, are liked most by people who are very high in openness. Um, Social jobs, these are jobs like uh, education and healthcare. Uh, people in these industries who are high in extroversion and agreeableness are very satisfied with their jobs. Here again, there's a lot of social contact with people and there's a lot of helping. There's a lot of spending time nurturing people and helping them either um, get better or to, to learn new material. And conventional jobs are uh, liked most uh, among people who are high in conscientiousness. Conventional jobs would be uh, administrative type of work. Um, and so people who are high in conscientiousness will be very detailed uh, and orderly. And naturally, they will enjoy that type of work much more than people who are uh, disorganized and um, not very detail-oriented. Now, we included a, 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 com a widely used measure of uh, mental and physical health. Uh, it's a measure that's used in a lot of uh, medical studies. And so we were able to look at whether or not there are certain personality characteristics um, that are, are associated with, uh, with health. And what we found was that uh, people who are very high in conscientiousness tend to be very healthy. Uh, I think the explanation here is that conscientious people are very cautious. They don't tend to take risks. Um, they're, um, you know, it's cold and flu season. I don't know if it's flu season, but it's cold season. I've had a cold I'm trying to get over. There's a number of other people I know who've got colds. And people who are high in conscientiousness are much more likely to go to the GP whenever they have a cold. Now, it may seem somewhat trivial, but you can imagine that over time, this can actually have some real significant advantages because people who are high in conscientiousness, they experience some illness symptoms. Most of them, let's assume, are probably not very serious, but some of them may be. By going to the GP sooner, they will be able to get, uh, uh, get any sort of serious illness identified and, and treated much sooner, whereas someone who's lower in conscientiousness, who may not be as cautious or as diligent, may put things off uh, to a point where it may be much harder to, to recover from some of these illnesses. People who are high in extroversion also tend to be quite healthy. Uh, there's a, there's a, a vast literature in, in psychology and in epidemiology as well as in sociology that shows that uh, social support networks are extremely important for helping people cope and manage illnesses. 
People who are high in extroversion enjoy being with other people, and they have a lot of friends. And so in times of uh, trouble, whenever they're feeling badly, they've got a lot of people they can turn to, people who will come and visit them, will bring them food, and uh, this, this makes it much easier for them to, to, to manage and to overcome some of these illnesses. People who are high in agreeableness also tend to be healthy. I think here, again, it's related to relationships, but I think that with agreeableness, people are able to maintain very close, intimate relationships. And so they have uh, closer people that they can rely on. They may not have a large social support network, but they have people who are very close to them who will look out for them. And there's also evidence that agreeableness is related to, to being optimistic and to, to giving people the benefit of the doubt. And with these characteristics, people, again, are able to, to manage some of, these, these li some of life's difficulties a bit better than people who are uh, lower in agreeableness and hold grudges and struggle to maintain relationships. And people who are low in neuroticism tend to uh, be physically uh, healthy. I think the explanation here comes from research in health psychology, which for quite some time has been looking at the impact that psychological health has on physical health. And the evidence suggests that people who experience chronic physical or chronic psychological stress uh, suffer physically. They have more illnesses and are at uh, greater risk for various diseases. There's uh, a number of kind of interesting techniques that these psychologists will do where they will put people in, in stressful situations or they will identify people who experience chronic stress and they will um, sort of prick their skin, give them a little blister of sorts, and then they will measure over time how quickly this blister recovers. People who are experiencing chronic stress take longer to recover from these sort of pricks on their arm than people who are less stressed. Now, given that neuroticism is uh, related to psychological stress and experiencing the world and, and, and or experiencing depression and anxiety, I think there are good reasons to believe that people who are higher in neuroticism experience more stress. As a result of this, their immune systems are weaker, and that makes them more susceptible to, to illnesses and, and disease. And there's a lot of evidence beyond what I'm presenting here to support all of these sort of uh, claims that I'm making. Now... Another question that I've been quite interested in for the past five years um, has been the question of whether or not there are regional differences in personality in this country. Um, I'm not from this country. I'm from the U.S. And uh, for a while, I've been interested in looking at regional differences in personality in the United States. And uh, I've published a few studies which have shown that there are you know, uh, regional differences on some of these personality characteristics in the U.S., for example, um, openness uh, tends to be high uh, in the, the Northeast. New York, for example, um, is, is quite high in openness. And it's also high on the West Coast. California is very high in openness. And what we find in the U.S. is that openness is uh, related to uh, votes cast for uh, Democratic presidential candidates. We also see that states with uh, disproportionate numbers of open people tend to have uh, large gay populations. And they also tend to have more uh, patents published per capita. So there are a lot of really interesting and exciting things that we're finding at a geographical level with personality. And so naturally, I've been quite interested in to see whether or not the, uh, how, or how personality is distributed within this country and whether or not it's related to any important social indicators. So the question is, are there personality differences across Britain? Now, I know that I'm running short on time, and so I will tell you now that I only have one map to show you. I only have 
brought one map with me, but this is something that I've been working on for the past few weeks now, and there's a lot of really interesting uh, and I think exciting findings that I look forward to, to sharing, hopefully with you all again sometime in the near future. But um, this, this slide, the map that I'm going to show you is with openness. You all know what openness is now, how psychologists define it. So the question is, how is openness distributed across Britain? Well, regions that are high in red, are, I'm sorry, regions that are red are high in openness, regions that are uh, blue are low in openness. And the results from, again, just preliminary data show a clear sort of north-south difference in terms of openness. Um, we can, we've done this now, we have, because we have the first four characters of participants' postcode, we can zoom in quite with quite a bit of uh, precision as to where they're located. Our analyses have been based on the local authority district level of analysis, and so it's, it's quite fine, uh, detailed level data. Um, and so what we're able to identify are cities, for example, that tend to be high or low in openness. It may come as no surprise to you that Oxford ranks uh, among the very top in terms of openness, uh, along with London, Edinburgh, Cambridge, and Cardiff. Um, regions that tend to be much lower in openness are, um, as you can see in the north, uh, Bedfordshire, uh, Aberdeen, Lancashire, etc. Now, I could spend um, another hour talking to you about the work that I've been doing with uh, geographical differences in psychology, I'm sorry, in personality. Um, there's a lot to be said here. What I can say is that, um, you know, openness tends to be high, as you can, you can see just from the cities listed, in university towns, in university cities. And um, I think it's important to keep in mind here that I think that these differences um, are in part a reflection of migration. I think that a lot of these regional differences, whether in this country or in the U.S., are based on what I describe or call uh, selective migration. The idea is that, you know, we, we will selectively move to places that satisfy our basic interests and our needs. We see this with people with children. They will tend to, to, to if they can, live in areas that have good schools, that are safe. And so it doesn't seem too far-fetched to think that people might, if they have the opportunity, settle in cities or in areas that may satisfy their psychological interests and needs. And so it may not be surprising that people who are high in openness, who are curious, who like playing with new ideas, are going to migrate to places like London and Oxford and Edinburgh and Cambridge, etc., because these are very vibrant places. There's a lot of interesting and new things going on. These are also culturally diverse places. So people who enjoy new experiences can, can uh, have much more, many more new experiences in such diverse places than they can in more uh, racially homogenous areas. Um, now we also, um, well, that's all I'll say about that. So there's a lot of interesting things to come out of that, and I look forward to, to sharing more of those results with you. Now, <clears throat> I've also, you know, I've mainly what I've been showing you are results from the, uh, the big personality test, looking at some sort of important life outcomes, important life domains. Um, but I've also spent quite a while looking at how personality is expressed in our everyday lives, you know, um, how we how we dress or how we present ourselves on Facebook or the kind of music we listen to or how we choose to spend our free time. A lot of our work 
clearly shows that personality manifests itself in, in many different ways across situations and in many different forms. And we have evidence to show that how people present themselves, whether virtually or in the real world, uh, reflects aspects of their personalities. And I think another interesting way of thinking about this is that we, all of us, are also personality psychologists insofar as we make impressions of other people. We can look at how someone presents themselves, how they dress, or what their interests are, where they live, or where they come from, and we make inferences about who they are, what they may be like. And a lot of the work that we've done looking at, say, personality and clothing preferences shows that to a certain extent, people can form fairly accurate impressions about certain personality characteristics based on how we dress. We find, for example, that um, conscientiousness uh, is related to being neat and tidy. People who are low in conscientiousness are more likely to have wrinkled clothing or clothing with stains on it or maybe missing buttons and whatnot. And it seems as though people have a sort of intuitive grasp of this because people don't necessarily sort of are, are say this up front or articulate it. But when we look at people's impressions of these real participants that we have and we relate their impressions to the clothing characteristics, we see that uh, tidiness, among other things, is an indicator of conscientiousness. We also see that uh, music preferences are related to personality. Of course, personality uh, isn't the only thing that determines our music preferences. Of course, uh, where we live and what we're exposed to is extremely important. Uh, social uh, demographics also are related to music preferences, but we consistently find that certain qualities, such as, uh, say, extroversion, for example, uh, people who are high in extroversion tend to really enjoy music with lyrics. People who are introverted, tend not to like uh, music with lyrics. They much prefer instrumental music. One hypothesis is that extroverts, they like to talk. They like to hear the human voice. And so perhaps they, they enjoy hearing the human voice whenever they can. And so that may be one reason why they enjoy music with vocals. Another hypothesis is that uh, extroverts are very enthusiastic. And uh, maybe with music with vocals, they can participate. They can sing along. And so it's a fun activity. It's, Whereas if it's instrumental music, you can't, you can't do that. And so hopefully, now that it's the, the sort of at the conclusion of this talk, I, I hope you have a better understanding of at least how personality psychologists now sort of think about and describe personality. But perhaps more importantly, uh, you can see how personality can uh, uh, express itself in, in many different aspects of our lives. Um, so that's all that I have. But I thank you for your attention. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you have. <laughs>